15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cheer we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico's. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today we have the honor to have Abigail Oresman. It's, she's an author of The Radical State, How Jihad is Winning Over Democracy in the West. An award-winning journalist she is and an essayist. She has contributed to Foreign Policy, Forbes, Salon.com, The New Republic, Politico, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The New York Times. I'm getting tired saying all this stuff. The World <laughs> Policy Review and other venues. She is a regular contributor to the investigative project on terrorism and has spoken widely on the subject, including appearances on uh, WNYC's Brian Lehrer Show, BBC News, and CNN. For more information, remember to consult her at abigailisman.com, A-B-I-G-A-I-L-E-S-M-A-N.com. Her latest book, Rage, Narcissism, Patriarchy, and the Culture of terrorism welcome aboard abigail how are you doing today i'm good thank you i love how you say that well let, let, let me tell you something um i started to read the beginning of your book and you took me on a journey through a run through new york i'm telling you something i like your way with words uh, i can see why you, you win the awards i can also see uh you take people where you are as you write and that's a great thing for somebody like me at least well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Well, tell me a little bit about, uh, before we get started uh, deep into this stuff, this is a political show, but we don't necessarily get very political with people who aren't necessarily political, but I kind of think that you are. So what are your thoughts on where we are in America today? Let's just talk about it from a, pol from a political point of view. Well, <laughs> how long you got? Well, Actually, since I want to talk more about rage, give me whatever you want, and I'll kind of. I, cut I, yeah, I I'll tell you. I think if, if you want um, where we are specifically today, um, I think we're on the cusp, and I like to think we're on the cusp of something very hopeful. I think we are going from, and this is this obviously relates very closely to my book. We're going from an administration under a man who. Um, was was accused under oath of having beaten and raped his first wife, um, who was known to have beaten at least one of his children, to the administration of the man who created the Violence Against Women Act. And I think that's about as good a metaphor for where we were and where we're going um, as I can possibly give you. You know something? That was actually pretty beautiful. I mean, I, and the, the fact that you actually use the word, you're hopeful in this transition. I mean, I, I, I am always hopeful that if we stay engaged, we can get things done, that we can effect change. I'm always hopeful about that. Uh, what, what, was, what felt a little bit terrible about this was that there were 74 million Americans who felt okay. I don't, say, I don't, I don't necessarily say that they all agree with what we had in power, but somehow were willing to continue 
what we had. And um, in, in, in that light, I want to ask you, what, how do we get to those Americans? I mean, I like your, it, it, your book seems like the, the type of books that you write and having more people write books like that seem like an antidote. Your thoughts? Well, I, I certainly hope so. I would like to think that my book was something of an antidote because that was part of why I, I wrote it. Um, not just for the current administration, but for a general culture of terrorism, which is where we are in America and around the world right now. There's an enormous amount of violence. There's a rise in violent crime. There's a rise in domestic violence. There's a rise in hate crimes. Um, I think part of why, why that is and part of why it, it turned into 70, 74 million votes for Donald Trump is that much of this is generated by fear. You know, we, we, we hate what we fear. There's this fight or flight response and people fight against once they're, what they're afraid of and very charismatic or populist leaders succeed by making people afraid. That's how they gain power. And in the process of making people afraid, they also make them, many of them, more tolerant of violence, sometimes more violent themselves, because there is this enemy that has to be vanquished. Um, I, I genuinely believe, and I am an optimist, but I genuinely believe that without that voice in power, with a more calm, kind, empathic voice, that will change. Because um, people will no longer be as afraid. Let's examine those 74 million uh, people because, um, and, and we are going to get into, uh, and I think you're kind of edging, much of what you're saying sort of mimics some of the things that, that you say in, in, in the passages of the book. But I want to examine the 74 million people since you opened that door. Um, you, you talk about fear. Yeah. Fear, tell me what are the fears, uh, look into the eyes of those 74 million people. What is it that they have to fear, really? That they have to fear or that they think they have to That they think they have to fear. That's a better Very way of putting time. it. Um, they feel that they have to fear being replaced, losing mm -hmm. their status, losing their prestige, losing their power, losing their position in society, losing their jobs. Um, most of the time, the things that we fear most in life are the things that we fear losing. So if you fear losing something, um, you will do whatever you can to protect it and to protect your possession of it, your power over it. How do you tell people that they're fearing losing something they never had? Oh, but they did. Explain. Well, I, I, to say they never had it would be to say there's no such thing as white privilege, and I think that there is. I am so glad. I, I, again, you open the, you always open the door <laughs> first, you know. And uh, when I do my interviews, I try honest. to make it very pleasurable for the person that I'm interviewing, and I, I, I kind of lead things in certain. But you're, you're great. Now, now that you're talking about um, white privilege, I'm. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, you are white, I think. Yes, I am. Okay. Um, when we talk about white privilege in my domain, uh, I know that people think it exists. I know that people live it. 
I know that when I go into a store that I'm treated differently than somebody with a different hue than I am. But I, from how, where I came from, that to me is, uh, what's the word that I, that I want to use? And I want you to expand on this for me. Uh, when I talk about something that they never had, I've always seen racism and that privilege as a tool. In other words, it was a tool for, in my opinion, for separation in such a manner that a few elite, including the honorary white, notice I said the honorary white, was also an accomplice of that to keep everybody in their place and keep just a few on top. I'd like you to tell me if you follow what I'm saying. I think I do. Okay. And you want me to say something about it? I want you to exp uh, right. I I want you to to expand on that within the nature of your books, if you will, because I think I think one of the reasons this white privilege thing lasts so long is because we've been fighting it in the wrong manner. And I'd like to, your thoughts on that. Ooh, um, I think I should also point out that I'm not just white, but I'm Jewish. Okay. Being Jewish, and especially someone who lives most of the time in Europe, um, I am conscious of and have felt what I know many black Americans feel. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know what it is to be hated and cut out because of who I am, mm -hmm. whether I'm even a practicing Jew or not. I know that it is dangerous where I live to be Jewish. Um, so I understand where that feeling comes from, but I also feel that you are really on the button when you talk about the elite and this group of people who have tried to keep everyone else, including the Jews, including Blacks, including American, Asian Americans, keep them down. Um, and I think that is still the same thing. It is this, they have this power. They've always had this power throughout the world. And anything that threatens it becomes the enemy. So you have, you have two ways of dealing with that. And there are those people who are raised in cultures and raised in families and schooled to be empathic and inclusive and not to fear what is other. And you have people who are raised and trained in their cultures, in their families, in their schools to fear what is other because it's a threat. And if you fear it, you hate it. I'm Robert Conti, Chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. I have an urgent message. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities have increased in D.C. And I need your help to reverse this troubling trend. Did you know that using a seatbelt can drastically reduce the risk of death or serious injury to you or a loved one? Seatbelts save lives, and together we can accomplish a safer community. Let's make Vision Zero a reality in D.C. Always wear your seatbelt. Click it or ticket. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably been hearing a lot about the stock market lately. Millions of people are beginning to invest for the first time ever. And we're realizing that the financial system should be built to work for us. That's why Robinhood is creating real human education resources, truly digestible financial news, and a platform that lets you invest in your own way, on your own terms. The next generation of investors is already here, and it includes you. Robinhood. Investing is risky. Robinhood Financial, LLC. Now, I, I tell you something interesting, and, and then I, I want to go a little bit deeper into your book. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people look at the privileges and 
and the racists and all these haters as uh, uh, they they look at them as you know you know these bad people and all of that. Ironically, as I grew up, as I grew older, I actually felt sorry. I here I am as a black man and aggrieved, a Latino, a Caribbean, all these things all in one package. And when I look at the racist, when I look at the sexist, when I look at the homophobe, a homophobe of which I used to be until I grew up and learned. I actually feel a real sense of pity for the person. That's, that's interesting in two ways. One is that I agree with you. I do too. Although I feel more compassion than pity. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. Pitying somebody is a way of putting them beneath you. And I try very hard not to see any of us. You know, I may disagree with somebody's politics, but I don't want to look down on them. I just want to feel more compassion for them and hope that I can change their minds. Thank you. Thank you, because I think you corrected me appropriately. It's not pity that I feel. It is compassion. You're right. Uh, you're, you're, and thank you for, I mean, words have, words have meaning. And I, I, I stand corrected on that. I, I stand correct. You're absolutely right. Um, let's, let's go into rage, narcissism, patriarchy, and the culture of terrorism. The average person that reads that title says, what the hell does narcissism, patriarchy, and terrorism have in common? And I think the idea here is that you're going to connect those dots. So start connecting for me. Narcissism, which is what we've just lived through. Um, it is difficult to connect the dots because it's not a linear connection. It's, it's really a web um, of the three of them. But a, a person who is narcissistic is usually someone who um, is reacting from shame um, and, and a sense of needing to overcome that shame. And so they make themselves greater than everybody else. And the worst thing that can happen to somebody like this is to feel shamed, which is what we're living with with, with Donald Trump at the moment. Um, and what happens when they feel that kind of shame is they grow violent. They become enraged. And that's the title of the book is Rage. Um, their rage is what can lead to terrorism. Part of what leads to narcissism and part of what leads to a terrorist kind of culture is a patriarchal culture or a patriarchal hierarchy, um, which is sort of part of what a lot of people call toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. The idea of the man as this muscle-bound knight in shining armor warrior who is going to save the world, Sly Stallone, you know, all of these people, Rambo, um, who are going to, to somehow rescue everybody by the virtue of their greatness and their strength. And that is actually a very dangerous image because it, it promotes the idea that goodness is power, strength is power, and not just power, but power over other people, other things. Um, and a narcissist tends to see himself, particularly a male narcissist, tends to see himself in that way as this over, you know, this all-powerful savior of the universe. Um, and when you pull that out from under him, he becomes enraged. So it's all very complicated and intermingled. Um, it's 
So it's not a linear linear connection, but they are very closely connected. Well, I mean, the fact that you do have more male uh, terrorists and you have female terrorists, I think, uh, give such credence to patriarchy as being uh, sort of a genesis of that kind of behavior. And and I, I have not seen, you know, uh, and I hope this doesn't sound sexist, but I have not really seen too many women that I would be able to consider narcissist either. So, uh, well, I think you're, it depends on how you define a narcissist. Exactly. When women who are raised in certain cultures um, that breed narcissism by the nature of that culture mm-hmm. can be, absolutely. The Example? Often, well, the difference that you often see, um, and this happens very often in Middle Eastern cultures, is the association of the I with the we. So somebody may not be narcissistic as a person, but views the we as superior to everybody else and will die for that we, for that, for the ummah, as they say in, mm-hmm. in Islam. And um, this is where you often do get women who become suicide bombers, for instance. Ah, okay. I see. Now, it's interesting that you, you brought in some, some of the Middle East here because um, in uh, this sort of a two-part question or, or a twofer, because... Um, we tend to call what we have here not terrorism, but something else. Mm-hmm. But over there, terrorism. Now, you've interviewed uh, a lot of white supremacists, as well as you've interviewed jihadists. Tell me if there's a difference, if the genesis of their behavior is the same. Kind of give us a breakdown. As what, I, what I hope that'll do is kind of take some of the blinders off of Americans. The genesis is exactly the same. It is exactly the same. It is still this sense of us and, you know, you and me, us and them. Um, The sense of needing to protect the we that is us, that is me, against the them that is you. Um, And the you is always this threat to the we. And that's true for white supremacists who look at Blacks and Asians and Muslims and Jews as other. And it's true for radical Muslims who see themselves as above and beyond other Muslims who are most at risk and non-Muslims. So it's the same thing. And it comes out of families that are structured very much the same way with the same kinds of beliefs about where we are as people and who has rights and who does not have rights and what is good and what is not good and what is power and not is what not power. Now, is the United States now in our current form uh, more so than before? And I'd really like to hear that, let's say, because if we, we, if we throw in the, 18, in the 1700s and 1800s in, are we at this point in our history a culture that is creating more terrorism or, uh, or, or getting, you know, where do you see us on that scale? I think you could say that we're creating more terrorism on many levels. I don't know. I, I, I'm not in a position to say whether we are more violent, because again, if you go back a few centuries, people were more violent in general um, in their interactions on the streets. Um, but there's certainly more, 
more public violence, more general violence. And part of that, of course, is the availability of weapons that can do more damage than they were able to do in the 17th century and the 18th century. Um, but also we are a culture increasingly in a culture of extremes. And the far right and the far left are both, and this goes back to it again, experiencing their own kind of narcissism. And it's again, the same issue of, you know, it's my way or die. You do it my way or I'm going to come and get you. And this is happening as well on college campuses with a lot of students who refuse to listen to ideas that they disagree with, um, refuse to allow right-wing speakers and will have riots and, and sometimes they get violent, refuse to allow books, don't wanna read books that they think they don't approve of. I think that's very dangerous. And I think it's in its way as dangerous as what's happening on the far right. Interestingly, that politics done right, that's where, we, if, if I must say myself, we excel in that we bring in left-wingers, right-wingers, anarchists, everybody gets a chance to interview here and, and put out, because I, I agree with that. I completely disagree with what occurred at Berkeley and these other places where they don't allow the right-wingers. I think the easiest way to expose what I think is wrong with the right is just to let them talk, you know? <laughs> I mean... I've always said that, let them talk and then ask questions. If you, when, I do, when I talk to, I, I, I wrote a book called uh, How to, uh, I mean, it's worth it, how to talk to your, uh, your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors, right? And most of talking to them has always been asking them questions because usually when, the que when they answer the questions as far as their wants, it turns out to be they generally want progressive wants economically and socially, well, I don't discuss things. That I, I, when you get into religion, I can, there's no way that I can go there, right? Because it's, that, that's a different thing. That's an imaginary thing. You have to decide if you want to have faith or not. Uh, in that light, um, I have one concern that I, that I just heard, and I'd like maybe if you could expand on that for me. When we talk about the far right and the far left, um, do you really think there is some sort of an equivalence there? Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber, signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Touch-free QR code payments. Shop safe with PayPal. At Acuity Insurance, we believe the things you do for your business every day are nothing short of heroic. And you deserve someone equally heroic to protect them. Like the breaking ground on new construction things. The every box and barcode matters things. And the driving the family business forward things. We put our all into covering your business so you can focus on the things you love most. That's the power of heart. Acuity Insurance. Wholeheartedly for you. I think there's a potential for it. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I mean, I'm not, for, I'm, not, I'm not one of those people who believes that Antifa is a thing and that, um, it, it, that the Antifa movement, which is somehow led by, I don't know, George Soros, I guess. Right. It's not a movement, really. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't exist. But right. I'm not one of those people who, who sees this tremendously violent far left movement. On the other hand, I think there's potential. 
So help me out here because I, I, I agree with that answer, right? How do we mitigate that? Because at this point in time, they're not equivalent. But as you say, they could become equivalent. And I think that would be, as I, I, as, a, as a leftist, I think the left is very virtuous and um, in, in what we do based on what we believe in. And I, I see the right otherwise, not as bad people, just as misled people. And my question then becomes, how do we prevent what you just said from really occurring? Because I think you're right. I think, um, and I, I talk about this a lot in, in one of the chapters of, of, uh, of Rage, which is the culture of terrorism chapter. Um, when I talk about what has happened to the left and what is happening to, to the youth, particularly in America, but also in, in Europe where I live most of the time. Um, and that is this kind of molly coddling of, of a generation and now going on to a second generation that is in fact has been has been studied as being the most narcissistic generation we've ever had. Um, if you continue to give in to this and you continue to say, okay, we won't, we won't teach these books. We won't listen to these speeches. We won't allow these things that you disagree with. Um, two things will happen. One is that it will increase the likelihood and level of their rage when they are crossed because they become less and less accustomed to having to deal with things that make them uncomfortable. And it also will limit their exposure to what I think is the most important thing in gaining empathy, which is literature. And I believe very deeply in the power of the arts and in literature to instill empathy, to breed empathy in people. And if you're telling college students that they don't have to read literature because they don't like it, we're going to end up with people who have much less empathy. And then, then they will be more violent. Wow. Um, let, me, let me first say that we're kind of running low on time. And um, this interview didn't go at all as I thought it would. I thought it would have been a whole lot more antiseptic relative to your book. I think this is a much more enlightening interview for uh, our audience. And I think that'll just give the impetus for a reason why they should listen to, uh, first of all, get your book and listen to the words emanating from the book, because um, I enjoyed this Dearly, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't ask you? Oh, that's the question I always ask people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I honestly don't know. I I think you asked me some very good questions. It's concerning to me. um, One thing that we didn't talk about, and that is a very big part of, of rage, is the issue of domestic violence in families and against women and um, the fact that this is not taken as seriously as it needs to be. People don't understand it. They don't understand what the experience is. And the experience is one of terror. It is a true terror. And it needs to be looked at better. It needs to be legislated better. Um, I would hope that people start to understand that private violence is public violence, that what happens in the home happens to everyone. Um, So I would just hope that people, whether they buy my book or not, start to look at what domestic violence is really about and how it affects everybody. 
And that is why I always ask that last question, because first of all, I get enlightened by, wow, uh, next time around, I should have, I saw that notion in your book, and it's something that I really should have asked likely in the beginning. I didn't. So thank you so kindly for bringing that up. Uh, look, uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed this interview. And uh, I, I hope folks that are listening to, the, to, to us right now, go out there and get the book. You know, I don't always tell folks after we do interviews to go get the book or what, get this book. Abigail R. Eastman, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you very much. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price Tool. Only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal. A safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller. I'll take two tomatoes and a cucumber. Poodle pamperer, piano tuner, or plumber. Signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Touch-free QR code payments. Shop safe with PayPal.